This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. I had the good fortune, I think largely because our monastery is virtual, to connect to people in all little corners of this beautiful earth who had this sense of call to being both a monk and an artist, which I consider to be these two archetypes. And they nourish one another. They're in conversation with one another. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. I'm delighted today to welcome to the show Christine Walters Paintner. She's the online abbess for the Abbey of the Arts, a visual monastery offering classes and resources on contemplative practice and creative expression. She earned a doctorate in Christian spirituality from the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California, and achieved professional status as a registered expressive arts consultant and educator from the International Expressive Arts Therapy Association. She is also trained as a spiritual director and supervisor. Paintner is the author of 17 books on monasticism and creativity. Today we're talking about her most recent one, The Love of Thousands, How Angels, Saints, and Ancestors Walk With Us Toward Holiness. Christine Walters Paintner, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. Delighted to be here. So I want to start our conversation today, uh, and I, I usually, when I when I talk to guests, I call this first segment kind of setting the table so that our listeners can get a real idea of what the the bulk of the conversation will be about. And as I read through your book, The Love of Thousands, the, the thing that really kept I kept coming back to as a good starting point is a quotation that, that lands about halfway through your book from Caitlin Curtis, who is a Native American theologian and spiritual author. And Caitlin Curtis writes, quote, 
you may not be native in the way that I am native, but you belong to a people as you long for a space to know what it means to hold the realities of love, mystery, and hope. I pray that you find your own soul origins, those origins that help you trace your steps back to those early moments of your being when you were formed and spoken to in the depths of your soul. Now, when I came to that quotation, I thought to myself, this is what I've been reading this entire time in this book, and everything that you're talking about is summed up in this quotation. So I'd like for the, the sort of setting of the table portion of our conversation to really be unpacking this quotation. And so the first thing that I want to start with is this sense, this innate sense of wanting to belong somewhere. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about that and how you're thinking about that as you talk to us about angels, saints, and ancestors. Well, I think particularly for people who live in the United States, I live in Ireland now, but the, a lot of people in the U.S. are exiled from their maybe original indigenous lands where their ancestors came from, whether by choice through colonization or through force, through slavery and all kinds of other possibilities. And I think that that's a real suffering and a real sorrow that a lot of people experience that they're completely unaware of, that they don't have a sense of belonging to the land that they're living on. They don't have a sense of their ancestors of being from this place. And we can make a friendship with the land that we're living on, that we don't have to live in our indigenous land. It's, I'm not saying that we all need to return where we came from. However, when we're moving unconsciously in this way, then there is this chain of severing that we then act out in these unconscious ways. And so my work with the angel saints and ancestors has largely been about discovering these places of belonging and connection that are actually present to us in the invisible world. So it's not even just about the physical reality that we're in. And I think it most applies to the idea of the ancestors and how we might come to know who we are better. And then we can bring that sense of belonging to wherever we happen to be. And it's, it's similar to the saints as well, but I, I do write a couple of chapters about the idea of pilgrimage and journeying to these landscapes and coming to know ourselves through the the physical places, as well as that sort of spiritual connection through the veil. What I love about that answer is you've already begun to gesture in the direction of everywhere that I wanted to go. So in your answer, I hear kinship, I hear authenticity, I hear all of these themes that keep coming up again and again in your book, The Love of Thousands. And so I'm going to work slowly <laughs> through each of those. So I want to linger on what you said that there's real suffering that happens when we don't acknowledge that we are a part of a larger family that is not just our parents and our grand grandparents, but can actually connect to thousands of people going back generations. And 
that we are also in some way kindred with or in relationship with those that didn't have a physical existence, what we might call angels or spirits of benevolence. And then there are those that sort of land in between, which we could call saints in the various traditions. Part of what you're trying to do, as I read it in this book, The Love of Thousands, is you're trying to help readers become aware and awakened to the presence of all of these. They're already there, if I understand your thesis, but are not acknowledging them contributes to that real suffering that you're talking about. Now, as I begin to say my gleanings from your book, do I have it right? And if not, what would you correct? But if I do, I'd love for you to expand on that a little bit. Yes, that's absolutely the sort of focus of the book is this idea that, first of all, the angels, saints, and ancestors are very much real presences that are not visible to us in our linear, rational-minded kind of way, but they exist in this threshold space, this liminal space. In the Celtic imagination, it's called the other world. And what I believe, and the reason that the book is called The Love of Thousands is that my beliefs and is very much that they they are rooted in love. They are rooted in the divine presence that is the generator of love. Now, there, I do discuss some of the woundings that can happen, when, especially when it comes to our ancestors, and we can certainly touch on that. But this sense of how that I think in our Western culture, we're taught this lie of our aloneness and our rugged individualism and our need to do things on our own and not be vulnerable and not express our need. And so in addition to that severing of belonging that comes from not being connected to a place in particular, there's also a severing of kinship with other humans as well as the natural world because we're encouraged not to actually express any of that kind of need. So enter in, it's a love of thousands, but it's probably more like millions, like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. I don't actually know the technical answer. It's more poetic than literal. So that sense of, yeah, uh, how the, how that force of love is available to us and by actively cultivating it, through intuitive practices, through opening the heart, through extending ourselves in relationship, all of these things can help to give us that sense of support and belonging and care and kinship and all of those beautiful gifts that I think most of us are longing for, even if we're not completely aware of it. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Christine Walters Paintner. She's the online abbess for the Abbey of the Arts, a virtual monastery offering classes and resources on contemplative practice and creative expression. Today we're talking about her recent book, The Love of Thousands, How Angels, Saints, and Ancestors Walk With Us Toward Holiness. I want to circle back to a phrase you just used. You talked about the lie of our aloneness and how we are habituated and taught by our culture to think of ourselves as isolated individuals. And you're pushing against that narrative and inviting readers of your book, The Love of Thousands, to reawaken and reconnect with these unseen presences. Now, I think that for most listeners, the natural starting point, and this is partly why I started there, is with things like land and direct relatives. 
talk to us about how we can begin to reconnect with the saints and we'll move our way to the angels, but let's go from the directly physical or the more physical to the liminal physical, and then finally we'll get to the totally spiritual. But I'm, I'm curious, how do saints factor into this? They're not necessarily related to me, and yet you also treat them as part of our kinship. Yes, exactly. I, when I talk about ancestors in, in that section of the book, I am primarily referring to ancestors of blood and bone. So those would be the thousands who lived and laughed and struggled and all of that to bring us here into this moment. However, we do have ancestors of past. We have ancestors of our calling, ancestors of vocation. Uh, and certainly in the Christian tradition, there's a more formalized tradition of the saints. And the way I would describe the saints are those who are wise and rooted in love, who have passed over the veil, who have died but who, again, are still available to us. So not all of the ancestors are wise and well, and there is work that we can participate in to help with that healing. But the saints are the ones that we, because of their embodiment of love in their lifetime, that they are then beyond the veil available to us as guides, as wisdom figures, as sources of support, as really inspiration. And the saints, they can be the official saints. There's a whole Catholic tradition of canonized saints, which also can be a very political and expensive process. So perhaps not the best guidance for, any, for someone who wants to find the saint that really speaks to them. And for example, when I was in graduate school about 25 years ago, I found Hildegard of Bingen, who is now a saint. She wasn't at the time officially but she is a, a 12th century Benedictine abbess who was a visionary and a mystic and a healer and a preacher and a spiritual director. She's really an amazing woman, a visual artist. And, you know, I discovered her and I felt I was so taken with her vision of the world. And she actually led me into the Benedictine way, which is, was the religious order she was a part of, which is a monastic order that's still thriving. And so Hildegard, for me, I consider to be one of my patron saints. So my work is very much about integrating contemplative practice and creative expression. And Hildegard, for me, is the embodiment of that. So I can turn to Hildegard as a source of wisdom and inspiration, and I can cultivate that relationship and that connection with her. Uh, as a way to support me in my ongoing path, even though she and I are very likely not physically related in any way. But again, the, the blood and bone part is, it can be an important dimension of some of those relationships. But again, the, I think the embrace is much wider and we're looking to, we're looking for support. <laughs> From all of those who reach out in love, and that's, for me, that sense that these beings are longing to be in relationship with us. They're longing to give us that support and reaching toward us. And like any relationship, it just requires some attention and presence and cultivating. <laughs> As we're moving towards our first break, I want to highlight something that I'm hearing in your answer and also I, I found in your book. And you gestured towards it just now. When we're talking about saints, 
we're not necessarily talking about those that have been officially defined by an organization like the Catholic Church as canonical saints. You're seeing that in a much more capacious fashion. So saints might be Catholic saints, but we also, if I'm hearing you correctly, might look at saints from the Sikh tradition or saints from the Muslim tradition or saints from the Jewish tradition. When I say that to you, does that sound right or is am I missing something and you're like, no, no, I'd rather say it this way? No, I'm all in favor of being capacious and being expansive. I don't like to limit how we understand the divine. And certainly the saints who are the embodiment of that divine love can be uh, manifested in any number of different religious traditions or even none at all. Maybe there's an artist who lived or a poet who wasn't particularly a religious person, but who lived a life of real beauty and love and all of those kinds of qualities. And I think all of that is is part of, yeah, I don't I limit <laughs> how these people can work because they're in that invisible form of love. <laughs> If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Christine Walters paintner She's the online abbess for Abbey of the Arts, a virtual monastery offering classes and resources on contemplative practice and creative expression. She holds a doctorate in Christian spirituality from the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California, and she achieved professional status as a registered expressive arts consultant and educator from the International Expressive Arts Therapy Association. She's also trained as a spiritual director and supervisor. Today, we're talking about her recent book, The Love of Thousands, How Angels, Saints, and Ancestors Walk With Us Toward Holiness. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find more than 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Christine Walters Paintner. She is the online abbess for Abbey of the Arts, a virtual monastery offering classes and resources on contemplative practice and creative expression. Today we're talking about her recent book, The Love of Thousands, How Angels, Saints, and Ancestors Walk with Us Toward Holiness. So you said something in our earlier segment that I want to circle back to. When we're talking about those that have walked on the earth among us but are no longer physically here, ancestors and saints, you made the comment that not all of them that are still present with us in this unseen realm are wise and well. 
And this was one of the aspects of your book, The Love of Thousands, that fascinated me the most. The notion that not only can unseen presences help us on our journey, but we in some way have agency to help aid them and heal them on their journeys. I wonder if you'd take a few moments and talk to us about that part of your book. What are you getting at here? <laughs> well, I will say that this part of the Exploration for me began after my father died about 25 years ago. And he was definitely someone who was quite wounded, had multiple addictions. We were estranged when he died. It was very painful. And a few years later, my mother died. And then that kind of set in motion a whole journey for me <laughs> around connecting with the ancestors and really making, yeah, exploring this idea of what, what happens when. Someone does die in a, a state that's wounded and crosses over. And so the idea is that, um, that those who die may or may not be in a state of the fullness of love and that they can change even after death and that, as you said, we can participate in that in some way. And there's when I was first starting this work, there wasn't as, as many resources as there are now, and I'm, I'm grateful for the burgeoning of interest in this work. And we know from the field of epigenetics that there's actual changes that happen to our DNA from wounds, ancestral family wounds from generations back, and that we carry the wounds of our ancestors in our own, in our own beings. And Carl Jung wrote a lot about this as well and said the unlived dreams of our parents and our grandparents like continue to be expressed through our lives. And so if we're on a healing journey, which I think most of us are seeking healing in some form or another, this can be one really important aspect or dimension of bringing healing to our lives is to think about, consider our ancestors and uh, where some of that wounding might have come through. Now, we don't always know. Some of us might be adopted and might have absolutely no idea about our actual genetic inheritance. However, I think it's still possible. It's still very viable to do this work because a lot of it is an opening of the heart and a connection. And what we do then is we actually ask the ancestors who are wise and well to help with that healing journey. They're actually the ones that this actually took me several years to get to. And I'm grateful finally, because again, it's that sense of that you're on your own kind of mentality. You have to do the healing, but it's actually not true at all. You actually have this whole body of these invisible beings who want to help you. And so when doing this work, I think it's important to call upon a circle of protection because there are sometimes these energies we know in the living world that there are people whose energy we don't really want to let into our interior space. So we can create that, that circle and then we can ask for the support of the ancestors in particular and the saints and the angels. All of them will help us in that process. And yeah, that building that relationship. And I, I think part of it too is for those of us who are several generations removed from our original land and traditions, that there's a sense in which 
our older ancestors would have had the ritual tools to do this healing work on those who'd passed over to help them come to that place of peace. But because we haven't had that, for many of us, we haven't had that for many generations. We're, we're, we're relearning. So we are having to, so if we're going back to seek the wise and well ones, we may have to go back a thousand years. It's not like we know we go in this journey and we know exactly the person and the year or anything like that. It's more like experiencing Manifeld's connection to somebody who has that wisdom and can help us navigate that and help us to heal some of those family lines and that wounding. You know, I, for many years, I resisted the idea of purgatory because it's such a, it seems like such a conservative topic. And I just, it just was something that I always had difficulty with. But then I went through this whole journey with my father and I realized I'm praying for the souls in purgatory. It's exactly what I'm doing. And I had a, a very profound healing experience. It took 20 years to get there. But, but yes, that sort of sense, there is this, these traditions that hold this reality, right? That we can help participate in this healing that's not just on behalf of ourselves, but also for generations who came. And if, you've, if you have, say, ancestors who are in the Civil War, or for instance, my father who lived through World War II, like those kinds of significant cultural woundings as well are carried down through the line too. So we can even be, if we have some sense of our genetic ancestry, we might even have some sense of the larger cultural forces that could have brought the woundings in addition to all the small daily life woundings that we all encounter as well. Now, I imagine that some of my listeners may have become uncomfortable in some way from the answer that you just gave. And so to those listeners that right now are saying, this sounds really strange to me. I want to invoke a very ancient Christian text. It's called The Martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicitas. And in that story, one of the two, I can't remember which, either Perpetua or Felicitas, their brother dies, and they keep having a dream of the brother trying to drink from a fountain. And eventually, the brother is able to drink from the fountain, and then the brother the next night is not at the fountain. And it is interpreted within this martyrdom story. And again, it's an early Christian story that Christians use to shape their spirituality, it was interpreted that the prayers of Perpetua and Felicitas had helped the brother to achieve the final parts of the journey to get where the brother needed to go into heaven, paradise. And so when I bring up this story from very early in the Christian tradition, is this in the spirit of what you're talking about, of even being able to heal our ancestors and those who have gone before us in this realm and to have that kind of I almost want to call it a dynamism of dignity, where I'm increasing my dignity here and helping them increase their dignity on the other side. When I bring this in, am I getting it right? Would you push this in a different direction? Yeah, no, I think that's beautiful. And I very rarely get to have a little conversation about perpetual and felicity. So not a lot of people mention, (laughs) and, and it is a significant story. And I think it's a beautiful example of what we're talking about. When I mentioned purgatory, I did so with a little reticence because I still have a trembling around that word because it does make me feel uncomfortable. And yet I'm just pointing to the the reality of it, whatever we call it. I think we all have that, have had that experience of being wounded in our own lives and knowing people who are wounded 
and knowing that. And I think this again goes back to that community connection, right? That healing doesn't happen in isolation. Healing is not something that we just do on our own and figure it out for ourselves, that we are always part of a collective and that collective includes invisible as well as visible beings, presences, and even human and non-human presences. And so with the widening out of our understanding of, um, yeah, how healing happens, which is, yeah, not just a, a human individual sort of phenomenon. <laughs> If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Christine Walters Paintner. She's the online abbess for Abbey of the Arts, a virtual monastery offering classes and resources on contemplative practice and creative expression. We're speaking today about her recent book, The Love of Thousands How Angels, Saints, and Ancestors Walk with Us Toward Holiness. So, thus far in the conversation, we have been discussing those that have a kind of physical anchor to reality, either those that have died in the faith, the people that we might call saints, or those that have died directly in our lineage, those that we might call ancestors. But I was fascinated at how you dealt with the angels in this book. And first of all, I think for most of my listeners and for me, when we think of angels, we tend to think of these little cherubic, hallmarky little beings that don't have much personality, but they do have a kind of chubbiness and genteel nature and little wings and they play harps. But what I really love liked and learned from in your book, The Love of Thousands, is that if we look even just in the Christian and Jewish traditions, we find angels that have very distinct personalities and roles within what we might call the order of the cosmos. And here's the part that really grabbed me, that we can look particularly at the four archangels and connect them not simply to spiritual space, but to some extent also to the physical space that we live in. The archangels, if I'm reading you correctly, help to ground us in our movement in the cardinal directions. And so that's where I want to start talking about the angels. Can you tell us a little bit more about how angels map to our physical world? Yes, and I am all with you on the the cherubic little angels that we've been used to seeing. And I think the whole kind of new age community for a while, angels were very popular in that sense, but it was very much a kind of more love and light sort of emphasis and not really like the density and power that the archangels can bring and the wider community of angels. And so to be honest, even though angels are the first topic I cover in my book, they're actually the last ones that I really grew into my own relationship with in part because I didn't really like the little baby angels. So it's just, I didn't really feel like they could meet me in my reality as an adult human being and understand and, and be present. And then I started to explore this more and I had a couple of encounters, one of which happened when I was in Vienna, Austria, and I had a pulmonary embolism. So I felt very close to my own death. And thankfully, obviously, I, I recovered well. And there is a church in the city center called the Church of St. Michael. And on the top of that church is this a really large statue of the Archangel Michael with the sword and the dragon and, and all of that. And I remember walking by that, having walked by the church dozens of times, if not hundreds, but in this particular time, all of a sudden, I felt a shift. I felt a sense of the presence of 
the Archangel Michael as the warrior and protector, as an archetype that could be present to me and offer me some gifts that I had not previously seen or experienced. And then when I opened that door, then I discovered I had, I really didn't even know that the Jewish tradition is full of teachings about angels. The Islamic tradition is full of teachings about angels. And for me, it was this beautiful realization that the angels express something of this human hunger for connection to these divine beings, these protectors, these supporters. And so before there's, I should say that there's thousands, if not millions of angels, and there's all different hierarchies. And I'm not particularly concerned about those. And, and many of those dominions of angels actually aren't really intimately involved in our lives. But the archangels, I, I love because, again, it connects us to these particular archetypal qualities. So we have the Archangel Michael, and in the there's a Jewish bedtime prayer where you call the archangels to stand on different sides. So Archangel Michael stands on your right side, and Michael is the warrior and the protector, and also the one who stands at the threshold of death and helps midwife us from this life into the next. The Archangel Gabriel may be the one that people are most familiar with if they're part of the Christian tradition, because... We obviously have the Annunciation story that we hear every Christmas <laughs> with the Archangel Gabriel. And of course, he also appears to others um, in the scriptures as well. And so Gabriel is really known as the messenger or the communicator or the one who brings us our sacred invitation, our um, call to say yes, the way Mary did. And then we have in front of us the Archangel Uriel, who is the embodiment of wisdom and the sage kind of energy and calling upon that sort of support in our lives. And behind us is the Archangel Raciel, who is the Archangel of Healing. And in some interpretations is the angel that stirred the waters at Bethesda. And so we have not only this orientation, the sense of encircling, which is I find really powerful because you also find it, so you find this archangel prayer in the Jewish tradition, and then you also have in the Celtic tradition, for example, St. Patrick's breastplate prayer, which isn't specifically about angels, it's about the Christ presence in every direction. But I find it quite compelling to think about this human desire to feel that sense of being encircled and protected. And so, yeah, so the archangels surround us. They're already there, but we can call upon their presence. And then we can lean into these different archetypal energies, depending on what we're in need of in our lives. Well, and I want to turn to the practical now, because when we're thinking about ancestors, we can look through genealogies and maybe pieces of their lives have passed down generation to generation to us, we can have tangible connection there. If we think about the saints, we could go to a place where there's a reliquary, some aspect of the physicality of the saints, and we can connect there. But when we're talking about angels, we're talking about completely spiritualized beings that have no physical corporeality. We've talked a little bit about how they map to space, standing on my right or standing in one of the cardinal directions. But what are some of the ways, and I really want to bring out what you're doing in the book, what are some of the ways you suggest to readers that they can begin to connect with these beings that have no real kind of physical manifestation in the way that saints and ancestors have? 
Well, one of the kind of basic ways that I suggest for actually for all three categories is to create an altar space. So that's a very physical, um, embodied, ritualized way of expressing our desire to be in relationship with these invisible beings. And so we can have a an altar to the angels or to the archangels specifically, and we could put on the altar, you know, a candle and a cloth, but also symbols perhaps of the different energies that the archangels represent for us. You know, it might be a feather for the communication, or it might be a bowl of water for the healing or something earthy for the sense of the wisdom. And I think of kind of Michael as that kind of fiery protective energy. So that could be the candle. But I, and I also recommend people go for a contemplative walk, which is a walk where they aren't trying to get anywhere, which is so counter to, <laughs> to our usual way of being in the world, but is to open perhaps with an intention to connect to the archangels and to ask for gifts to be received, symbols that arrive. And so that that can be one way of entering into kind of a, a communication with the archangels and having symbols. There, of course, is the the feast of the archangels on September 29th and the feast of the guardian angels on October 2nd. We could think of those as like birthdays, but obviously they're they weren't born. <laughs> but like similar sort of energy. Yeah. So different ways of I think for me, ritual opening up our hearts and in imagination and opening, showing up on a regular basis, right? Saying these prayers. And then another piece that's really important, I think, and was certainly really key in medieval theology and Hildegard of Bingen being one of them was the idea of angels and music. And the idea that the essentially the there is a perpetual choir in the heavens that is being continually sung by the angels. And Hildegard would have said that in our kind of fallen state, if in terms of that kind of archetypal language, we can't hear that song, that music as clearly as we would have in, say, paradise. And so there, for her, singing the Liturgy of the Hours was a way of participating in that primal paradisical harmony and is a way for us to stay in connection with the angels and to stay, yeah, to uplift our souls, really, and to continue that practice. So, and I think that it's not just the liturgy of the hours. I think music of many forms can be that way of communication and joining in with the angels who are all singing the praises all the time. (laughs) If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Christine Walters Paintner. She's the online abbess for Abbey of the Arts, a virtual monastery offering classes and resources on contemplative practice and creative expression. Today we're talking about her recent book, The Love of Thousands, How Angels, Saints, and Ancestors Walk With Us Toward Holiness. We'll be back in just a moment. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find more than 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to welcome to the show Christine Walters Paintner. She's the online abbess for Abbey of the Arts, a virtual monastery offering classes and resources on contemplative practice and creative expression. Paintner is the author of 17 books on monasticism and creativity. Today we're talking about her most recent book, The Love of Thousands, How Angels, Saints, and Ancestors Walk With Us Toward Holiness. A couple times in our conversation, you've mentioned Hildegard of Bingen. And when I was reading your book, The Love of Thousands, I was very taken with this idea that Hildegard of Bingen said that we once had access to a kind of celestial and eternal harmony, and we've lost that. But we regain it to a limited extent when we participate in things like singing in harmony with others. That image really grabbed me. And I was struck by something you said earlier in the conversation about your own work, that you marry together contemplative practice and creative expression. And so I wonder if you'll talk to my listeners a little bit about how that looks in practice when you are working with people to help them contemplate and to create. What are some of the fruits of that? What have you observed that shifts in people uh, as you work with them on these two modalities and bring them together? Yeah, thank you. That's a, a beautiful question. And I think of in the Christian mystical tradition, we talk about the apostatic and the cataphatic paths, and the apostatic paths being the way of unknowing, the way of darkness, of mystery, and more in the direction of what I would consider most of contemplative prayer would fall under in terms of meditation practices and listening in silence and all of that. The cataphatic path is the way of images. And so it's that passive beauty of discovering God in the, the flowers and the colors and the scents and the, just the incredible array of sense experiences that we have in our lives. And so I, and those two things are not in opposition. They are a, a dance or a dialectic that are an integral part, I think, of our spiritual experience. And there may be seasons of our life when we're more drawn to one or the other. But what I discovered in my own life and practice and then discovered was very true kind of the whole monastic tradition is that for those who do make that time for some stillness, for moving into quiet, for that interior work, the more we're able to do that, the more we touch then into that upwilling of the spirit that is at work in our hearts, that creativity that then wants to pour forth. And of course, if we think it's not limited to monks, but if we think of monks who pray several times a day, but then also produce their goods and produce art and things like that. So there's this, um, yeah, there's this dance. And essentially, I had the good fortune, I think largely because our monastery is virtual, to connect to people in all little corners of this beautiful earth who had this sense of call to being both a monk and an artist, which I consider to be these two archetypes. 
and they nourish one another. They're in conversation with one another. My much of the teaching for me in the monastic past for me comes from the desert Benedictine and Celtic lineages. And the the wisdom that we get from that can really also help us in our creative work. So just as an example, something like humility, which is can be again one of those terms that people cringe at or find a bit of difficulty with. And yet Humility in the monastic tradition is really about remembering both our earthiness as well as our giftedness. And so if I'm coming to creative work with humility, I don't have to create a perfect work of art, a beautiful work of art. I'm creating out of the gift that the creator bestowed upon me. And then I can do that in this kind of loving way that is an open vessel. I think a lot of the teachings for me in the monastic tradition help us get out of our own way when it comes to the actual creative practice where all the inner judgment can arise and the inner critic and the things that stop us from doing what makes us feel most alive. What I love about this is earlier in the conversation, we talked about becoming more fully present to ourselves. And now you've introduced this idea of getting out of our own way. And so I want to invite you to dance with those two seemingly on the surface contradictory ideas. How are we accomplishing the becoming more present to ourselves in this moment and getting out of our way with humility at the same time? And what have you observed that looking like in the people that you have worked with over the years? Yeah, well, it's a paradox and, and a dance. And I'm a big fan of paradox. But this sense that we're all a multiplicity of parts, right? We all have different voices inside of us, some of which we like to reinforce and some of which we like to resist. And I definitely believe that all of those parts of us are each serve purposes and each can be fruitful sources of wisdom and can be guides for us. And so, so for instance, monastic tradition, hospitality is a really core principle. And this idea in the rule of Benedict, he talks about the stranger, when the stranger knocks on the door, welcome that stranger as Christ, which to me is incredibly profound because it means that the thing that makes me the most uncomfortable is the very face of the divine. That's where I have that encounter. So monastic tradition and other contemplative practices can invite us into this space where we can embrace more and more of ourselves because that stranger is both within us as well as outside of us. And of course, Jung, Carl Jung would say that we project the inner on the outer. So it's all connected, right? And then ultimately, we're also connecting to that sort of eternal part of ourselves, the mystics tell us that the divine spark is in every single being. And I would say, again, human being as well as other living beings. And so there is this kind of sense of unity that we also can reach through our contemplative practice, the sense of a deep connection to the source of love within us that we then also experience in others around us, that we, the more we go to this place of stillness and compassion for ourselves, the more we discover that we're actually connected to everything else that exists. So anyway, I don't know if I actually answered the question directly, but 
that's the dance that's going on in my mind right now. <laughs> if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Christine Walters Paintner. She's the online abbess for Abbey of the Arts, a virtual monastery offering classes and resources on contemplative practice and creative expression. She's the author of 17 books on monasticism and creativity. Today we're talking about her most recent book, The Love of Thousands, How Angels, Saints, and Ancestors Walk With Us Toward Holiness. Well, we live in a very multifaceted social media space these days, and you are the abbess of a virtual online experience, a a virtual abbey, the Abbey for the Arts. But as I think about your presentation here, as I think about the way that you are talking to us about this unseen world, I can imagine that occasionally this sort of thesis bumps up against the sort of group of people we might call online atheists. And I want to be as generous about this as possible. Let's say those who are committed to a certain view of the world that we might call materialist or physicalist, those who want to say there is no unseen realm, these are fables, these are stories. And so I imagine that you have had occasion to interact sometimes with people that hold to this position. In my hypothetical, I would like it to be as generous an interaction on both sides as possible. So not hurling insults, but rather genuinely trying to understand the other side. And so my request to you is, in this hypothetical, can you talk to us about how you would engage a person committed to the idea that there is only the physical? How would you begin to talk to them about the power that you have encountered in this other way of imagining the world? or this other way of seeing the world? Yeah, I think in part, I mean, it's obviously a very different worldview, and yet we share obviously some common human experiences in terms of our feeling states, our perhaps a sense, things that spark wonder and beauty and joy. I think those are places that we can find some common language around things. So even if you don't believe that there are actual invisible presences who are the embodiment of love, to live a human life that feels rich and deep, right? There there has to be an openness to that sense of love and care and compassion and joy and beauty. Obviously, we don't get that right all the time. And hopefully we're always on the path, no matter whether we believe that source is a divine source or whether we believe that is a kind of a choice or a moral compass or any kind of inner directionality that, what is it that leads us to live a meaningful life? What is it that um, generates a sense of generosity in us, a sense of caring for others that we don't necessarily have to care for? Anyway, those are some of the things that kind of come to mind. I so appreciate that answer. And what I really love about that answer is you didn't go to trying to convince my hypothetical other of the truth of this unseen world, but rather you started with common ground. What are the things that we aspire to in terms of making our relationships better? How can we how can we spark wonder? How can we enculturate a meaningful life together? I really appreciate that approach because I think It is so needed these days for us to be able to talk across these kinds of deep divides in the ways that we 
fundamentally see the world. And in our last few moments together, I really want to invite you to talk to my listeners about some of the ways that as you were writing this book, you felt and experienced some manifestations of this unseen world. You talk about it at various points in your book, The Love of Thousands, but, and I don't want to completely give away the whole book, but I wonder if you'll give us what the, the filmmakers would call a little sizzle reel of some of the moments that you have encountered this, this other world. I would, I would appreciate that very much. Yeah, well, yeah, there have been a lot. And as I mentioned, being out in nature for me is a primary way of experiencing this. And I'll I'll even just share, and just last month was the 20th anniversary of my mother's death. So I didn't even share this story in the book because it was already published. But I went out to the woods to be with her spirit. You know, I was very close to my mom and I still grieve her loss. And I went out in just a small woodland near my house and I put my hands on some of the trees and I heard her say to me, my beloved daughter, I am in the greening life force that infuses you and everything that is. And I just felt that experience. Like I gave myself time to really be with that and to receive it. And I was looking for communication with her and it came in in a way that I wasn't quite expecting. And that's actually has been really sustaining in this, these last couple of weeks, I've been praying with that a lot, that image of the greening life force it goes back to St. Hildegard because she really saw that aliveness in all of creation. So it's been this beautiful gift of giving me a sense, not only of a connection to my mother, but my mother connected then to all of these angels, saints, and ancestors, and my loved ones here and all of creation. So that's one example. And I pretty much every year that my mother's anniversary is passed, I would go out to a, a natural place and I would have some sort of encounter. I've had a coyote visit me and I've had a rainbow. And my, my early on, there were lots of butterflies and those kinds of symbols. So, and my father just really briefly, you know, 20 years after his death, I had this experience lying on a massage table and it was very spontaneous, even though I had been working hard at this healing work for 20 years. But the moment that the sense of healing came through was so spontaneous and unbidden and I wasn't actively thinking it. It was just arrived to the sense of my father finally moving into this beautiful like golden light. And it happened to actually be on the anniversary of my mother's death. So I feel like there was some sort of connection to her spirit as well, helping that along. So yeah, there's been loads. And I think if we slow ourselves down and we open our hearts and we listen and we cultivate these relationships of care, that there's going to be communication. There's going to be these little synchronicities. And if we take them seriously enough, it becomes part of a conversation that's unfolding. What I really love about that answer is I hear in it yet another way of addressing this earlier hypothetical that I presented you with, because there is one sense in which we could say these are true metaphysical realities that you are participating in, where there is, beyond the veil of whatever we might call it, there is healing happening with real persons that were part of your life. But the physicalist, the materialist might come and say, 
even if I don't believe that, I can see that the stories that we are telling ourselves are improving and that we have a sense of connection and wholeness so that we're not carrying stories of pain and loss and separation, but rather we're carrying forward stories of healing and we're carrying forward stories of generational repair. Now, when I present this to you, I hope that you don't hear it as a challenge, but rather as another example of common ground. And so when I say this to you as an open possibility, even to the materialist, even to the physicalist, I wonder how you receive that. Well, I, I, I don't hold a lot of attachments to beliefs, common beliefs. I hold a lot of attachment to practice and how we embody what it is that we um, hold most dear in our lives. So whether or not someone believes a particular doctrine or whatever that is, is not as important to me as the conversation that happens by how we are in relationship to other, how we show up to, for one another. And I often think that so many of our world's problems could be softened, alleviated, solved if we danced together? You know, what if we just had space? What if our politicians danced together before some sort of big summit? I don't think it's likely to happen. But, you know, there are these invitations. Dance for me is one sort of symbol of joy and release and surrender and vulnerability and all of those kinds of things. So bringing that kind of spirit into our relationship to others, whether we agree with them or not, or it's, it's, it isn't actually that relevant to me. It really depends on how we're actually treating one another. Well, Christine Walters Paintner, I was surprised and enlivened by your book, The Love of Thousands. When I got into it, I didn't quite know what to expect. And every time I read uh, another chapter, I was struck again by the generosity of your writing and the way in which you brought together such disparate traditions in such a, a holistic and welcoming way. I learned a great deal from this book. I know that my listeners will as well. I know that you walked through a journey in writing this book. Thank you so much for taking that journey, but also for taking the time today to talk about that journey with me and my listeners. Thank you so much, David. It's been a delight. We've been speaking today with Christine Walters Paintner. She's the online abbess for Abbey of the Arts, a virtual monastery offering classes and resources on contemplative practice and creative expression. She is the author of 17 books on monasticism and creativity. Today we've been talking about her most recent book, The Love of Thousands, How Angels, Saints, and Ancestors Walk With Us Toward Holiness. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. <laughs>